All right, are you, are you there at First John? When you talk about community, it's an interesting thing to look at our culture and evaluate it from the lens of what, we, what we've experienced in American culture. If you start with the 50s, let's, let's start with the 50s. When we look at, look at what happened in the 50s. Like look at this picture from the 1950s. This is an interesting picture. We gathered in all kinds of places, barbershops and, and cafes and, and, and salons. And here's a, here, this is an interesting picture because there's a bunch of guys hanging out, but it's a, multiple generations. There's young kids here. There's old grandpas. There's middle-aged men. There's a guy with really high pants over here on the left side. It's awkward. <clears throat> but, but, but there was something about the 50s. It was a little bit different time wasn't the most important commodity friendship was. If you think about the 60s, you go on to the 60s, it was a decade of, of transformation. Right? If you look at, if you look at this, this family, the extended family members are still there, but like this was probably taken at the beginning of the 60s. At the end of the 60s, they all had long hair and, and bell-bottom jeans and tattoos. But there was, there, was something, there was something that happened in the 60s that challenged the, the conventional wisdom of our culture. However, the, the family support system was generally intact. If you go to the 70s, you had a, you had a, a process whereby people bought a lot of polyester pants. <laughs> <laughs> polyester pants were all the rage. You got these, these, these moms. Now, the mom wars hadn't started yet, but they did have something that they called women's liberation. And there was this redefining of the breadwinner's roles within our culture. And who was going to raise kids and who was going to work outside the home? And, and there was this whole discussion that was going on. And, and so the, 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 the support system was still there. It was strong. But, and you could still, like, walk over to your neighbor's house and borrow a cup of sugar or a cup of flour without being embarrassed. Um, <clears throat> so then came the 80s. Oh, the 80s. This was an awesome decade, the most awesome music decade that there is. Right? Am I right? Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure what it is with the clothes. The, uh, I'm, I'm not sure why anybody came up with acid wash. It just doesn't sound right to wash your clothes with acid. And, and, and everybody's clothes were all like three sizes too big. What is up with that? Or we're obsessed with shoulder pads. It was kind of weird, um, so, but bad hair, bad hairstyles, eccentric fashion, materialism, but great music. And so <clears throat> the thing is, though, that friends, friends started really becoming the centerpiece of community, friends. And it became so much so that it defined the 1990s. Friends defined the 90s. And what is this story about? What, are, what is this sitcom all about that ran for years and years and years? It was about young people in their 20s leaving their homes, leaving their families, and going to New York City and trying to make it. And all they had was each other. 
Because all they had was just each other, trying to, trying to make it through, trying to support one another. But here's the thing. In the 90s, our support structures were shrinking. They were thinning. The divorce culture was in high gear. Families were being torn apart. Culturally, things transformed. The, the internet came into existence. Woo! Something happened as we, as we started going to the 2000s. And, and that brings us to today where we have more conveniences than ever. We have more advantages. We have more opportunities at our fingertips than any generation before us, than, they, than those generations could have even dreamed of. We, we look happy in all of our Instagram posts. All, all of our photos are perfect silhouettes against a golden backdrop. We're trying to present a picture of ourselves and how much we love life and how much you should want my life. It's interesting. Occasionally, we are actually even happy. But very often, people are overwhelmed. Very often in our current culture, there are moments when we just feel alone. We have more likes on Facebook than ever, but we feel alone. Moments where we wonder what happened to the village that we used to live in or that we need to live in. The village has vanished in our culture and therefore there is a struggle to figure out how to create community. What does it look like? How does it work? We felt strong enough, right, to move away from some of our old support structures. Now how do we create these new ones? Everybody's trying to figure that out. Brilliant author and pastor John Ortberg has a quote that's in your message notes there. And it says, connectedness is not the same thing as knowing many people. People may have many contacts and many networks, but they may not have any friends. And I think that's really true. I want to recommend that book to you. It's called The Me I Want to Be. It's a, it's a really, really good book, really good defining book. There's an academic journal called the Journal of Happiness Studies. <laughs> it's kind of a funny title, isn't it? It doesn't sound very academic. The Journal of Happiness Studies. No, it's, a, it's an academic journal that publishes studies using the tools of research to identify what makes human life flourish. When researchers look at what distinguishes quite happy people from less happy people, one factor consistently uh, uh, separates these two groups. It's not, and it's not how much money you have. It's not what your IQ level is. It's not your career success. It is not your health. It is not your attractiveness. What distinguishes consistently happier people from less happy people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships. They found that emotionally isolated people are more prone to depression, to anxiety, loneliness, low self-esteem, substance abuse, sexual addiction, and, and difficulties with eating and sleeping. We have an entire nation that has trouble eating and sleeping. <laughs> That's a problem. 
social researcher Robert Putnam, he writes, he puts it this way, the single most common finding from a half century's research on, li on life satisfaction, not only from the US, but around the world, all right, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. By this picture, there's a lot of unhappy people. People who are socially disconnected are between, check this out, <laughs> two and five times more likely to die from any cause than people who, are who have close family ties, who have friends and other relationships that bring meaning to their life. People who have bad health habits like cigarette smoking, overeating, elevated blood pressure, and physical inactivity, but who remain connected, check this out, they live longer than people who have great health habits but are disconnected. How is that for living in a city where everybody's trying to get healthy? Right? You know what this means? You know what this means? It means you could be fat and happy and live a long time. There's a, <laughs> some of you are really happy about that. So there's, a, there, there is a, there's an example of this. Winston Churchill has a, has a great quote. Um, <laughs> this physical life-giving power of connection uh, happened to him. He had a wonderful marriage with his wife. He was deeply connected to his family. He was deeply invested in his friends, his nation, his work. And his health habits, though, were terrible. His diet was awful. He smoked cigars all the time. He drank too much. He had weird sleep habits and was completely sedentary, right? He didn't, he didn't do anything except sit around. Yet he lived to be almost 90 years old, right? Somebody asked him one day, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? And he replied, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. <laughs> All this brings us to a question. The question is, what does community look like to you? What does it look like to you? How does it exist in your world? Or maybe it doesn't exist in your world. What does it look like? What should it look like? The good news is that we're not the first ones to have faced challenges with creating community. The Apostle John wrote to a group of people who were trying to create just such a community. And he was coaching them. In 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read through this letter to this community of people and how he coached them. And we're just going to read a few scriptures throughout this letter. And we'll start with verse 1 in chapter 1. And here's what John said. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus himself. Verse 2, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
first thing I want you to realize is that community comes from God himself. The idea of community comes from God himself. The Trinity is the perfect picture of community. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What we have to realize about God is he has always existed three in one, a being perfect in his own community. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interacting, sharing life together, serving one another. When Jesus was sent to the planet, when Jesus was sent to the earth to illustrate what God is really like, one of the first things he did as an adult was he created a community of 12 friends. He created a community of 12 guys and their extended families, and they began to live life together, do work together, accomplish things together, and talk about ideas as they shared these things and challenged one another and talked about the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus did. He was showing us what God was like. And I want you to notice from this passage that it is a multi-sensory relationship. It is not a one-dimensional relationship. It is not just intellectual. It's not just spiritual. It's not just an emotional relationship. John says, we heard with our ears. We saw with our eyes. We touched with our hands. We interacted with him. There is something more to relationships than just the intellectual interaction sometimes that we subscribe to online. And so, so it is important to understand that the community demands flesh and bone engagement, not just the version that we deem appropriate for others to see when we want them to see it. I think this is one of the struggles with social media. This week, A study came out, Mary Meeker's uh, Trends for the Internet, Internet Trends for this year. I guess it's a report that comes out every year, and so everybody's been talking about it all week long, and they're talking about the different highlights that are in this report, and and so one of the things that came in the report, I was reading about it this week, and, and it was that no matter how hard we try to make social media social, we keep turning it into a marketing machine. We can't help ourselves. We, we leverage everything into advertising. And we don't even mean to. Like, it just kind of happens accidentally, and it's happening within the framework of this Internet. And, and so that means companies become really interested in the Internet and, and having a presence. And, and all cool apps are free, uh, and, and the ones that aren't are really annoying with a lot of ads. Right? But one, one example... And it's incredible, the the scope of the internet. I read 18, between Facebook and Snapchat, 18 billion video views a day. 18 billion video views a day. That number is staggering. We're all sitting around watching other people live. (laughs) It's so interesting. Um, I don't know if you know this lady named Candace Payne. Candace Payne. You might know her better as the Chewbacca lady. <laughs> She's the Chewbacca lady. Have you seen this? 
Now, I'm not going to show you the video. You go watch it yourself. It's way too long <laughs> to show in church. But my wife showed me this lady, and it was so hilarious. My wife just couldn't stop laughing because this lady laughs all the way through. And what she did was she bought a mask, a Chewbacca mask at Kohl's. She mentions, check this out, she mentions Kohl's twice in this YouTube uh, video, and the Kohl's app skyrocketed to number one on iTunes. 150 million views that day that she had on YouTube. It was incredible. <laughs> and so she didn't even mean to. She wasn't trying to sell Kohl's stuff. She just did. <laughs> And so what's so interesting is my wife, she's like, I love this lady. This lady's so awesome. And I was like, babe, you don't know that lady. <laughs> you only feel like you know her. Because so much of what we do in the online world is we promote a persona or a brand. Now, did we get a glimpse into her life? Sure we did. Sure, and people Googled her, and they found out she was a Christian, and she's part of a church, and she seems like a great lady. But that's just what her online presence is. It's a, in, a, in a way, it's a brand, and sometimes I feel like we're only sharing our brand with people. We're not sharing our lives. We're not sharing our, we're sharing our personas. We're not sharing love and life. I'm not against social media, by the way. I, th I think it can really enhance legit relationships, but it, of course, very difficult to replace them. And so, and so I, as, we're, as we're looking at what the scripture says, we saw him, we heard him, we felt him with our hands. There is a community that is interactive, and we have to mirror that community that God created that he created in Christ as he came to the earth, and now we carry this on as the, as the community of Christ. 1 John 1, 5, just a few verses down, it says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The first thing I want you to write down is, I need others to walk with me. Walking in the scriptures often refers to spiritual growth, a spiritual journey. I need others to walk with me on this spiritual journey. You'll notice here that it says, if we walk in the light, if we walk in this spiritual journey in the light, as he is in the light, then something happens to your friendships. Light in our hearts. No, no, no dark thing escapes the light of Christ. If we live in relationships like that, something is created. This verse says fellowship is created. What is fellowship? The, the Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia means, the, the, the several meanings in this word, participation, communion, partnership, con contribution and help, sharing in. There's a sharing in that happens when we walk in the light, when we don't hide from each other. When we'll let the light hit every part of our lives instead of just show people what we're proud of. 
If we'll let them really see what's going on inside, something is created. It means vulnerability. It means openness. And when, when that happens, fellowship begins to mature and something happens in our relationships. And notice what he says right there at the end of verse 7. He says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Almost as if there's a process here. Now, let me, let me say to you that there is no sin or mistake or foolishness that the blood of Jesus cannot heal. The blood of Jesus is strong enough for anything in our history, any failure, any, any sinfulness. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to deal with it, to wash it away, to heal our lives. The problem is not in the blood of Jesus. The problem is in the application. This is the problem. We often try to apply the blood of Jesus in isolation. We try to apply the blood of Jesus in our own fearful isolation. We don't want others to think poorly of us. We don't want to share what's really bad going on in our lives. So we hold it, we keep it, and we don't share it. And then we try to just put the blood of Jesus on us, and then it's like, thank you, God, just forgive me, I'm so sorry. If it's any kind of habitual sin, it's even worse because guilt and condemnation lives right here, and we have trouble living free in the work of the blood of Christ if we're trying to do it by ourselves. It's really hard. What you should get from this idea is that I'm not just talking about having a community. <laughs> You're like, oh, Pastor Ross, I got my community. I, I mountain bike with buddies every weekend. It's awesome. It's fantastic. I, I, some of you might say, well, my kids, they have all these games, soccer and baseball and Little League. We, and we, I have this group of people. It's great. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about your hobbies. I'm not talking about a, just some friends. I, I, I'm not talking about just a, a friend that you, some friends you go out with, some ladies you, you hang out with. We, we go every week. We go to happy hour. It's awesome. Only occasionally do we get sloshed. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the community I'm describing that God has implanted within his people or that he's calling us to. I'm, I'm talking about the fact that scripture seems to indicate that it's not just our felt needs that should drive us to community, but the very essence of the gospel message that, is requ that requires community. That failures, repentance, and forgiveness takes hold. The gospel takes hold in a community when we live it out together. And I think it's the only way we'll be able to share it with our neighbors and share it with the world that lives beyond the community of Christ that we share is if we will live it well here. And so there's something to community we've got to grasp, and it is God's answer to loneliness. Community is God's answer to loneliness. And when I say this, I'm not, I'm not just talking about being alone. I'm talking about the feeling of loneliness and, and, and having others invest in your life and you investing in theirs. Because here's the truth. Com the community of Christ is not like H-E-B. It's more like a community garden. Some of you participate in church like it's a grocery store and you come and you get a little bit of this and get a little bit of that. Oh, I like Pastor Ross. He just, he gave us something really cool here. I'm going to take some of that. I'm going to take it home. It's going to be great. 
Community is not, the community of Christ is not like an H-E-B. It's, it's like a community garden where we all tend it. We all cultivate it. We all are invested in it. If we're not all invested in it, it doesn't work. It becomes, we become a shell of who we're supposed to be. If we keep going into the next chapter, 1 John 2, just turn the page to verse 9. It says in verse 9 of chapter 2, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. I love that phrase. Loving your brother and sister in the light means there's nothing that will make them stumble. You ever stumbled in the dark in the middle of the night? Hit your toe on that bed frame? Verse 11 says, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. The second thing I want you to write down is I need others to watch out for me. I need others to watch out for me, to warn me, to defend me, to protect me, to help me stay on track. I need others who will help help me experience the benefits of community. The benefits of community are safety. Proverbs says in the, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. We all need support. We need support and help when we're going th- on this journey. The journey sometimes is so hard. We need people to help us. I love this African proverb. When you run alone, you run fast. When you run together, you run far. I feel like in our culture, we're all running around really fast, but then we're burning out too quick. Our marriages are failing halfway through. We fall out of the community because we're just so pressured, pressed, and consumed and overwhelmed. I think we need others to run with us so that we can run far. Listen, the fact is we all have blind spots. I got blind spots. You got blind spots. All God's children got blind spots. We, we, all, have, we all have things we don't, we don't know. We don't see it clearly. Listen, you need the smarts of others. You need the experiences of others. You need to apply your smarts to other people's lives as well. Your experiences. That's, that's, how the, that's how the body of Christ is supposed to work. Look, all of us are smarter than one of us. All of us are smarter than one of us. And so we need people to help us with these blind spots. You ever have a taillight out? You're driving around. <laughs> some guy next to you, hey, you got a taillight out. Thanks, man. And then you roll your window up, jerk. It's like, I, he was helping you. He was trying to help you. It's like, <laughs> just there's, there's this process that we go through where we need others to see what we cannot see. You ever have spinach in your teeth after eating a salad? You're at a party, and then f- you, you go home after the party, and you're like, you look in the mirror, and it's like right there. And you're like, what? I, why, why didn't anybody tell me I had a big piece of lettuce right here? I don't, do I not have any friends? I don't have any real friends. We need people to see to help us because darkness is how we live when we don't live in a love relationship, in a loving community. 
We walk in darkness. So community is God's answer to defeat. You don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be unprotected. You don't have to, you don't have to walk in a way that you just feel like you're in darkness. Other people can see for you. Other people can help bring light into your life. Other people can bring uh, uh, a defending uh, characteristic and quality into your soul. Like, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to protect you. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to suffer defeat. Finally, 1 John three sixteen, it says, if you go to the next chapter, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is a phenomenal scripture. How do we know that we belong to the truth? We take care of one another with, in a real practical way. Love is practical, it's tangible, it's measurable. That's what community should look like. And in this verse says, this is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When we're in a crisis, this is how the presence of God comes on us. We live with other people who are walking with us and helping us through the crisis. Number three is, I need others to work with me in a crisis. I need others to work with me when things are not going well. And I promise you, every one of us will go through something really difficult you either are going through something difficult or you've just gone through something difficult or you're gonna about to go through something difficult. We're all there. You shouldn't feel ashamed that life is difficult. We need others to tell us that though, to reinforce it for us. There are situations no one should ever have to face alone. Waiting in a hospital for, for a, a risky surgery, waiting for a lab report of a pregnancy problem. Nobody should have to wait alone. Nobody should have to wait for a news from a battlefield or wait for a coroner to identify a body. Nobody should have to stand at a fresh graveside alone. No one should have to spend the first night after your husband or wife dies alone. No one should should be alone the first night after your husband or wife walks out on you. We all need someone who will wait and weep with us. We all need someone who will do this with us. You don't need to, I'm not talking about fixing their problems. I'm not talking about having all the answers. I'm just talking about sitting with them in silence and letting them know that you are with them. And they're not alone. Here's what the scripture says. We show each other who God is when we love each other. We, we show each other who God is when we love each other. This is what 1 John 4, 12 says. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, oh, people get to see it. And his love is made complete in us. Love must flow. It can't just be static. It doesn't just sit somewhere. It flows between people. God's presence settles on us when, when we do this with one another. What's the best time to prepare for a crisis? <laughs> yep, that's right, yesterday. 
That sounds harsh in some way because you, some of you might be experiencing a crisis right now. And the body of Christ is called to gather around you. But here's what I'll tell you. It's really hard to make deep and meaningful friendships during a crisis. You don't have the capacity for it. Others don't know the context. They don't understand what's really needed because they don't know you. It is very challenging. That's why you and I have to build community when there is an opportunity. We have to build community when there's an opportunity. But I fear we're just not looking at that opportunity often enough because we're running so fast. Here's the amazing thing. You have an opportunity. It's called supper for six or seven or eight or nine. Did you not see that coming? Come on, you, got to you had to see that coming. It's summertime. It doesn't matter how late the kids stay up. Stop stressing out about the schedule. All right, enjoy with people. Invest in some relationships. Find a way to build some community because you feel alone. This is the moment. Community is God's answer to despair. Community is God's answer to any despair you feel. Lastly, this is 1 John 4, 18, and we'll finish with this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, well, I don't hate anyone. I don't hate anyone. Well, that's not really the question. The question is, do you really love anyone? Is there anyone who really loves you? And what, what this passage says is that when you live in a community of love, that it drives out fear. Number four, I need others to win the war of fear in my life. I need others to win the war of fear. We have an entire nation full of fear. You turn on the television, it's full of fear. Twitter, full of fear. Facebook, full of fear, full of threats, full of anxiety, all kinds of stuff. Here's the point. Community is God's answer to anxiety. What is fear? Fear is nothing but anxiety being expressed. Fear is about worry. Fear comes frustration that things are never going to work out for me. Fear comes from the feeling that I'll never measure up. Fear comes from the, the sense that I've, I, I'm, not, I'm not all that I should be. I'm not accomplishing all I need to. I'm loaded with guilt. I have insecurities, rejection, shame. It all leads to fear. Community is God's answer to this fear and to this anxiety. Now, I want you to just... I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to end here. I want you to listen to a, a blog post that I read this week as I was doing research. And this lady, she, I don't know if she's a Christian. I just know she, she writes a blog about her home life and, and about what she's experiencing in culture. And 
It's called the absence of the village. What do we do without a village? What do we do? What, what, what happens to our lives? I want you to just listen to this. Here's what she wrote. She said, in the absence of the village, enormous pressure is put on parents. We're trying to make up for what entire communities used to provide. She said, our priorities become distorted and unclear. As we attempt to meet so many conflicting needs at one time. She said, we feel less safe and more anxious without known boundaries, expectations, or support of a well-known group of people with whom to grow. She said, we're, we're forced to create our tribes on our own during seasons of life when we have the least time and energy. We tend to hold tight to our ideals even though they drive a wedge between us and others. She said this as a mom. And as, as, as she was talking to mothers, and she said, she said, we hold on to our parenting paradigms even when doing so divides us. We want to feel safer. We want to feel less overwhelmed. She said, our children's natural way of being is compromised. As most neighborhoods and communities no longer contain packs of roaming children with whom to explore, create, and nurture their curiosity. She said, we run around like crazy trying to make up for the interaction, the stimulation, and the learning opportunities that were once within walking distance. She said, we forget what normal looks and feels like, which leaves us feeling as if we're not doing enough or enough of the right things. Depression and anxiety skyrocket. She said, we feel disempowered by the many responsibilities and pressures that we're trying so hard to keep up with. She said, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need in an attempt to fill the voids. We rely heavily on social media for a sense of connection, which often leads us to feel even more inadequate <laughs> and isolated. She said, we feel lonely and unseen, even when we're surrounded by people. She said, our partnerships are heavily burdened by the needs that used to be spread among communities. And our expectation of loved ones increased to unrealistic levels. She says, we frequently feel judged and misunderstood. We feel guilty for just about everything. not wanting or having time to be our children's primary play nights, playmates, not working enough, working too much, allowing too much screen time, <laughs> a million perceived responsibilities, joy, lightness, and fun feel hard to access. We think we're supposed to be independent and we feel ashamed if we need others. We make decisions that don't reflect our values, but rather in our deeply unmet needs. I gave you a little personal community inventory. You can take that home in your message notes. And I want you to look at those questions. I want you to ask those questions of yourself.